This is the Do It Scared podcast with Ruth Sukup, episode number 103. On today's episode, we're talking to best-selling author and motivational speaker, Ashke Nanavati, about taking it to the extreme and turning your fear into an asset, not a liability. Welcome to the Do It Scared podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Sukup, and each week on the show, we will talk about how to face your fears, overcome obstacles, and most importantly, how to take action and create a life you love. This episode is brought to you by Elite Blog Academy. And right now, we want to invite you to grab your copy of the newest edition of my best-selling book, How to Blog for Profit Without Selling Your Soul. This is the book that since 2013 has sold nearly 500,000 copies in more than 10 different languages. And now it has been completely updated and revised for 2020. Our goal at EBA is to get it into as many hands as we possibly can, which is why for a limited time, we will send it to you absolutely free. All you have to do is pay for shipping. To grab it, simply go to EliteBlogAcademy.com slash book. Once again, that's EliteBlogAcademy.com slash book. Hey there, and welcome back to the show. As always, my name is Ruth Sukup, and I'm the founder of Living Well Spending Less and the Living Well Planner, as well as the founder of Elite Blog Academy and the New York Times bestselling author of six books, including my newest book, Do It Scared. In today's episode, we are chatting with one of the most inspiring people I've ever met, Ashke Nanavati, about what it takes to overcome life's biggest challenges and do the things that seem impossible. Ashke is a former U.S. Marine who has overcome PTSD, debilitating depression, and severe alcoholism through a combination of neuroscience, psychology, and spirituality that he calls Firvana. He is now on a mission to help our human family build a positive relationship to suffering to live a life of boundless bliss. And he is the author of the book, Firvana, about which the Dalai Lama has said, Firvana inspires us to look beyond our own agonizing experiences and find the positive side of our lives. And ultimately, that's exactly what this podcast is all about too, because in the end, courage doesn't mean we're never afraid. Instead, Courage is being scared, but taking action anyway, despite our fear. It's putting one foot in front of the other, even when we're not quite sure where the path is going to lead. All right, so as always, just a couple more quick things before we dive into today's episode. First, you can download the show notes for this episode by visiting doitscared.com slash episode 103. Once again, that's doitscared.com slash episode 103. Also, if you have not done it already, please go check out my new TED Talk. You can find that at doitscared.com slash TED to find out all about the fear archetypes and how your fear might be standing in your way and what you can do about it. You can also take our free fear assessment to find out more exactly about what your fear archetype is. But if you haven't seen it yet, please go check it out. Again, the URL is doitscared.com slash TED. All right, guys, with that out of the way, without further ado, here is the very inspiring Ashke Nanavati. 
Hey, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Ruth. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. So I just always love starting out my interviews by hearing people's stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Because truly, I don't think that there's anything in life that's more fascinating than hearing people's stories. I don't know about you. I'm a a story lover. I'm always (laughs) grilling people everywhere I go. Like, tell me your story. What's the the scoop there? I love it. (laughs) So in fact, that actually happened. We do this thing in my neighborhood that's called Food Truck Friday. And so every Friday, we go and walk around and get the food trucks. And um, last Friday, I made the mistake of like, getting really interested in one of the food trucks stories Story. like as a, from a business standpoint. And so I started, I was like, is it okay if I ask you some questions? And so I started asking <laughs> all of these questions and they got really paranoid about that I was the IRS or, yeah, it was really it. funny. They're like, we can't share, we can't share any of that information. I'm like, okay, sorry. It was That's awesome. being overly nosy, but yes, I'm a story lover. I love so it. you, and you have an amazing amazing story, which I'm very excited to talk about. So let's just start with that. Okay. I want to hear your story in its entirety and how you got to be doing what you are now. Sure, sure. So yeah, my journey to Fearvana and my world today kind of began when I moved to the US. I, I'd born in India, lived in India, Singapore, and then moved to the US at 13. And a few years after moving, I got very heavily into drugs into alcohol. I uh, heard some of your story as well. And I used to cut myself, burn myself. I still have these scars on my arm and was just in a very self-destructive place. I lost two friends to drug addiction and was headed down that path myself. Could have very easily been me. And thankfully, one day I saw the movie Black Hawk Down. Have you ever seen that movie? I've never seen that movie. It's a it's a war movie it, based though. on yeah it's yeah. a it's a very powerful movie war movie based on a true story and watching that movie kind of planted a seed that transformed my life forever just watching people who sacrifice their lives who give up their lives for somebody else and it just triggered something in me that what kind of human being would have that courage and it really made me question this very selfish meaningless purposeless existence I was currently living and so after watching the movie I read the book Black Hawk Down and just started reading book after book on military and life in combat and almost overnight stopped doing drugs and decided to join the Marines wow how old were you at that point I was about 17 uh, at the time when I stopped okay wow wow so that completely transformed your entire life transformed changed my life completely exactly so you joined the Marines it took me about a year and a half to get into the Marines because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in Marine Corps boot camp. So I had to get medical waivers. I have like this blood disorder. I have scoliosis. I have flat feet. So I have all kinds of terrible genes <laughs> You're that I blame. Basically, a disaster. Are. Exactly, exactly. So I said, "I'm like, thanks, mom. You know, <laughs> for these flawed genes." Uh, <laughs> but it, so I had to get like medical waivers, and it took me a little while to get in. But finally, and I only think I only got in because it was post 9/11. So here's this sort of young dumb kid eager to go in infantry as well right front lines uh so i was i think otherwise i wouldn't have got in but i got in and i not only sort of you know it not only obviously survived but i thrived i absolutely loved it graduated in infantry school was the honor graduate in my platoon and that's where i first started to learn the beauty of adversity the beauty of fear the beauty of stress of anxiety of struggle you know because i mean obviously marine corps boot camp was hard so after coming out i started for looking for other ways to challenge myself And I would go like mountain climbing, cave diving, skydiving, rock climbing, ice climbing. I mean, you name it. Nature became my playground to explore my fears. Because before this, before joining the Marines, I was terrified of everything. I mean, Ferris wheels. Not even like a roller coaster. A Ferris wheel. (laughs) Yeah, which is ridiculous, right? I mean, a Ferris wheel. (laughs) 
so, and then kind of took a 180. <laughs> wow, that is a 180. So, okay, so let I need to unpack unpack some yeah, of this a little bit because sure. I feel like you skipped over like a lot of things. <laughs> so, first of all, you're 17. So, how old were you when you started doing the drugs? About 15 or 16. 15 so, or yeah, 16. Six, so, you 16, got into think, drugs yeah. and self harm. Do you mm-hmm. like? And was that just rebellion? Was there some sort of trauma? Was there something that you think like? Do you just got in with the round crowd? What was what was the deal there? Because you guys moved to the U.S. from India yeah. at 13. Was, did that yeah. feel super traumatic to you? What, what, what? Like I'm, I'm psychologizing you now. So what? No, totally. <laughs> it's a great question. I've pondered it myself. Yeah. My parents have asked me too. You know, because I, I have had great parents. Mm-hmm. Could not have had better parents. Like you know, none of that sort of horrible childhood stuff. But so they've asked me, you know, what could we have done differently? And truth be told is I'd moved to four cities by the time I was 13. So from Bombay, Bangalore, Singapore to US. So part of it was I was just lost in my path, who I was, what I, you know, what I wanted to be in the, for myself, for the world. And, you know, I don't blame my environment. Like I take responsibility for my behavior now, but especially as a young child, we are at the effect of our environment, you know? And so I happened to get into a group of friends that started doing that. And I was kind of the person to always push the line. So, you know, when we started doing marijuana and drinking, I was me and one other guy started going into harder stuff. And that guy was Oh, he OD'd. So him, like I said, it could have easily been me. So part of it was I was just lost, got into this crew. And I always say that had I found groups of friends who were like ultra runners or mountain climbers, you would have I been probably that. would have. Exactly. Yeah, I can actually relate to that. Like you have that personality that is the like, whatever you can do, I can do. I can do better. I'm going to do it more exactly. extreme and I'm going to exactly. do it just one, one step up. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. Sadly, I can relate yeah. to that. OK, so then you decide yeah. to join the Marines. So how long were you actually in the Marines for? Six years in the Marines. Six years. And six years. so this was what year? I joined in 2004. I went into boot camp. OK. So not a great time to be in the military because with all the stuff that was happening. 2003, the war started. And truth be told, and you know, this, I don't mean to sound sort of a war junkie, if you will, but when I enlisted, I enlisted with the desire to go to war. I mean, I had just seen Black Hawk Down. And not that, you know, as far as the politics of the war, we should not have gone into Iraq. I know all of that stuff. I actually did my history thesis on the war, so I'm very well versed in it. But there's something fascinating to me about experiencing humanity at the extremes of the human condition. And there's this thing about war. It brings out the very worst and the very best in humanity. You see awful atrocities, right? People doing horrible things. But you also see people sacrificing their lives for another human being. And to me, there's no greater act of love than giving your life for somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. And so experiencing humanity at the extremes to me was something fascinating. And at the time, war was... The and admittedly very naive in many of my approaches uh, about how I viewed war, um, but that's what drew me. So when I joined the Marines, I was volunteering to go to any war. I mean, I was volunteering to go any deployment I could get, like send me wherever I could go. You know, as soon as I joined, um, so I was kind of seeking it in some ways. So did, and so that's where you went to Iraq. Yeah. So then in 2007, I went to Iraq. I twice, actually, I mean, I volunteered twice. The Marines told me I was going, but last minute they canceled it, and then finally. You know, we got activated in 2007. Uh, my my little unit, we got activated and sent to Iraq in 2007. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. So uh, this is this might be a dumb question, but was it like the movie? Was it like like you had you had joined because of because you had been so inspired by the movie and the book, and mm-hmm. that this was mm-hmm. this thing that had inspired you? So was it? I mean, how did it compare? Yeah. 
So no, it's, a, it's not a dumb question at all. It's a great question. And that was my struggle, actually, with the war, is that it wasn't... I did not get to experience... Um, war at its and this again this this is i don't mean to sound like a war junkie if you will but i did not get to experience you know when i went there weren't firefights happening all the mm -hmm. time we had shots go off at us like little things were happening here and there uh like one of our our biggest threat was the ieds the improvised explosive devices so a, a company in our uh, like a vehicle in our company did get hit with an ied thankfully nobody was killed but it wasn't firefights happening regularly we weren't in this 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 you know that sort of wild west type war zones mm -hmm. and um and truth be told is I also went out there with a sort of, I wouldn't say suicidal, but I went out there not expecting to come back alive. Hmm. And so I wasn't afraid of death because in some ways I was ready for it. And so, I mean, even when I was in war, one of my jobs was a fairly dangerous one. Like my job was to walk in front of our vehicles looking for bombs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow Marines. Yeah, that like whenever we would pretty cross. dangerous. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> if somebody's going to get blown up first, right? Guess that who would be? You. Yeah. So, exactly. <laughs> so was this just like another form of self-harm? You know, the reason I went into the, to give context, the reason I went into the war with that mentality is, so before I, you know, before I went in, uh, to Iraq, as I mentioned, I was volunteering to go every chance I could get, right? Twice we got called up. And it was me and a buddy of mine who were volunteering every chance we could get. He, him and me got very close when we joined our unit. His name is Neil. And what happened was, you know, two times we volunteered, they canceled at last minute. And finally, one summer while I was vacationing in India, he did, he, he ended up getting a chance to go and he went. And see, that, and to give also some context around that is when we trained together, we were the very similar kind of Marines. That's why we got very close. But I always beat him by a few points. You know, I beat him by a few points on the rifle range or by a few seconds on a run. And so I was, I was sort of, when we'd compete friendly, you know, friendly competition, but I'd always beat him. And so one summer I was vacationing in India and he ended up finding a unit to go with. And he was a good Marine, so he got promoted to corporal. And as a result, he was in a seat that got hit with an IED and he was killed. Oh, wow. And so... I felt so guilty that I was off vacationing in India when I should have been there continuing my commitment to him to volunteer. And had I gone with him, and admittedly, I know I'm not like unaware that rationally you can't, I could have gone with him and things could have still, you know, gone the same way it did. But it felt like to me is I should have been there. I should have gotten that promotion instead of him and I should have died instead of him. So she, he could have come home to his fiance, to his family. Mm. So when I finally got my chance to go, I, and ad, again, admittedly a naive perspective of war because you can't control this, you know, bullets fly where they do, is that I went out there saying if somebody had to die, let it be me and not anybody else, knowing that I can't control that, but to whatever degree, you know, let it be me. And so it wasn't the same sort of self-destruction in, in the way that I was, you know, in a, in, in before in my, in my younger years, but it was this sense of that... You know, I, like I don't, if, if it has to be me, who, who cares? I didn't have a plan for my life after that. You know, at one point I wanted to go career Marines and I wasn't really thinking future past that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So then, but then obviously you decided to not make it your career. So what, what brought that about? You know, when I, when I came back, I struggled. I struggled with the fact that I came back. I struggled with the fact that I didn't get shot. I didn't get, I didn't lose a limb. I didn't get hit with an IED. My you know, I didn't get, ex I didn't experience the, uh, the true, like the true suffering that maybe I, in some ways I was seeking. So I kept volunteering to go back to war. I said, send me back to Iraq, send me back to Afghanistan, send me somewhere. I struggled to be, I came back and finished my senior year in college and, you know, not and today I'm in a very different level of awareness than I was then. But at the time, you know, you come back and you're sort of judgmental. You come back to college students who 
very different perspective. And like today I see, you can't blame somebody. Like it's not their fault. They don't have the level of experience and awareness that I had. We all do the best we can with our knowledge and our awareness and our abilities. But back then, again, I was a little bit more judgmental and harsh. So yeah. I struggled with these college students just complaining about different things about life in a different way. And so I was like, just let's, let's, let's go back, you know, send me back to war. But um, as, as with before, I didn't get the um, chance to go back. And so what happened was when I got, I went to grad school and then I met my now ex-wife, but I met my wife at the time. And that's when my sort of path changed. You know, I went to actually grad school for journalism because I wanted to become a combat journalist. Oh, so I, thought, I said to myself that like, because in the Marines, you have no freedom. Mm-hmm. You go, you know, zero freedom. You go to war, you do what you're told all the time. So I thought to myself, let me go back to war, but at least I get to control the experience in that to some degree. Interesting. So that's why I went to become a journalist and wanted to become a combat journalist. Oh, Interesting. And that's where I met my uh, wife at the time. So that path, once again, kind of changed. Okay. Yeah. So then, okay. So then what happened? So the path so, changed. Uh, you met your path wife. Soon. Yeah. And then. So what happened after that is then, you know, then then like a combat journalist life is not exactly a, a good life for, uh, you know, for having a family or anything like that. So path changed again. And obviously at this point, I had no real clarity on where my future wanted to go. So I, you know, I got a corporate job for a year and a half just to sort of, be responsible, put some food on the, you know, to be a responsible adult in some ways. Uh, I hated it, obviously. Uh, I hated the corporate job and quit my corporate job. Like the, actually the day I signed up for the corporate job, I knew exactly what day I would quit because I also signed up to spend one month dragging a 190 pound sled for 350 miles across Greenland. Wow. In like temperatures as low as minus 40 degrees. So, so I signed up. Sorry, go ahead. Were you still looking for, it sounds like you were still searching. Like you're just searching Absolutely. for what is my purpose. Absolutely. And I was still seeking experiences like war, like going to Greenland while not war, it replicates a lot of similarities of that, like the the simplicity of life in war zone, the hostility where life and death are a constant concern, because life is actually very simple and in some ways paradoxically peaceful in a war zone. Hmm. And it's this strange kind of thing there. It's it's strangely very peaceful when all you have to worry about is living and dying. And so I was seeking those places by going to Greenland. At this point, I still did not have, you know, where where I am today. And so I was looking to run away, essentially. I wasn't aware that I was doing this. Uh, You know, now in hindsight, I, I am. But I was running away from confronting my true demons. So I got the corporate job, quit a year and a half later, skied across Greenland. And at this point, I was starting to build up what would be my business, right? And I started to get into personal development because throughout my time now, you know, just getting into getting from joining the Marines to then climbing mountains and getting into uh, mastery at these levels, pursuing fears, it was sort of a natural progression to go deeper into understanding the psyche, understanding the process of mastery, personal development, right? So that led me to life coaching. So I got certified as a life coach and I was kind of building my business on the side. And that's what, so when I came back from Greenland, I started building the business. But now with no corporate job, with no uh, you know, external structure, like in Greenland and war zones and corporate job, there's an external structure provided to you. You know, when you're building a business, there's no external structure. You have to create it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't create it, if you don't do a good job of that, you can easily get caught up, right? Like it's easy to just sit on my couch one day doing nothing. Right. So without external structures forcing me to like sort of stay focused, soon the demons started to rise up. Mm-hmm. And now I had to face them. So it was kind of this. So what did that this look thing. like? 
So it was this kind of interesting thing happening at the same time. At one end, I was growing my business, doing very well because, you know, I was always kind of will and grit. I was pretty good at suffering my way. Yeah. <laughs> like I'll suffer my way to a result. Yes. No yes, problem. Right? I'm sensing, the, I'm get sensing it. that about you. <laughs> you get it. Exactly. So on the one side that was happening, but on the other side, there was these demons slowly starting to rise till eventually it hit kind of a breaking point. And eventually when it did, obviously my business started slowly falling again. But I got to a point where like, you know, like I, I would have weekends, so weekend drinking, right? You know, I would drink and I was not the kind of person to drink every day, but when I drank, I drank hard. And that slowly led from one days of drinking hard to two, to three, to four, to five. And eventually these would be sort of week-long binges. I mean, I was at a point in my life that I would drink a bottle a day. I mean, a full so bottle. So you were an drink. overachiever when it came to drinking also. Exactly. Don't do anything in moderation. N- nothing in moderation. <laughs> Never. I've realized now that moderation is not – like I've kind of realized now I'm either going to do great things and change the world yes. or I'm going to be dead in a ditch on alcohol I or drugs. Actually There's can, no middle ground. <laughs> I think I have said something very similar in my Yeah, life. <laughs> so you can relate. <laughs> exactly, right? Yes. And like you, you have to then you. I mean, thankfully, we've we both have gotten to the point where we can at least now channel in a positive way. But we, of course, you know, know that not yes. everybody. But does. But you have a people. high capacity for the ability to self destruct. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So you started drinking massively. Massively. What? What was? So I mean, that there's not a good way for that to end. It was, I was one, one morning after, I mean, you know, I would go through these binges, wake up and be like, this is like, obviously being like, this was horribly self-destructive. I need to change, not changing, going back into the pattern until one day that after one of these binge sessions, I just woke up on this couch right here next to me and, um, was about to walk over to the kitchen, pick up a knife and slit my wrist because I thought this pattern would never end. And there's no point like going on. And it Are, shocked me. Can I stop you for oh, one please, second? Please, Are were you please. still married at this point? I was. Okay. Yeah. So this is probably uh, not great for your marriage either. It wasn't. She. It wasn't great for my marriage. I mean, I was never sort of a, a, you know, like, I mean, like a violent drunk or anything like that. I would go more do it sneakily. My wife would go to bed early. I would mm. then like be, then I'd have my bottles hidden under the kitchen sink, Ooh. you know, that kind of yeah. thing, hiding it all kinds of places. When she goes to bed, I'm like, I'm just going to watch some more TV. So I'd be drunk enough until she was awake and then take it to the next level, you gotcha. know, uh, once it, or if she was traveling or something, that's when I'd go really hard, you know, mm. like the bottle a day kind of thing. So you know, I, I would find ways, you know, as every alcoholic probably knows, you find ways to hide it to the best you can. And you're only ultimately lying to yourself, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, and when that happened, I mean, I didn't tell her at the time. I was too ashamed. I, I still remember walking up my stairs, seeing her in bed, too ashamed to look at her, to, to, to confront her, to confront myself, you know? And just disgusted with the place. It shocked me that I had even thought about taking my own life because I had a version of who I was in my mind, right? I mean, I had done some things by that at that point already. I would build a business. I, you know, I done all these things. And it's like, that's, that's not who I am to get to this point. So that was kind of, I mean, it wasn't like that was a, a magical shift from that moment. Everything changed, but that was like the starting point of when I climbed out of the abyss. So wait, from that moment, you were going to slit your wrists and then you decided, how did you decide not to? I mean, just the fact that the thought even entered my mind uh, was a shocker. It was yeah. like, I've never, that, I'd never considered that before. You know, mm-hmm. I would drink and I would, but I never like thought about taking my own life. Like, I mean, this was like a serious thought that literally, and it jarred me out of my own, like out of my own stupor, if you will, that, whoa, you just got so low that you were literally considering, I mean, when I say considering, I mean, you, you're seriously considering taking your own life. How can you hit that low? So that just the entrance of that thought into my consciousness was jarring enough to kind of 
be like, well, something needs to clearly change now. So that was rock bottom. That was rock bottom. So then what? I mean, where do you go from there? So at this point, you know, I had st- I was seeing a VA therapist because uh, to be very frank, what happened even before I got here was uh, my wife and I were, I was struggling physically, like sexually, you know, and uh, it wasn't anything physical. It was psychological. So she was like, let's go find out what's going on. I'd never gone to a VA therapist before this because, you know, uh, nothing wrong with me. I'm good kind of mentality. You know, <laughs> I don't need to see anybody. Uh, so I was like, all right, whatever, we'll, we'll go let's sort this out. I want to make sure, you know, fix our stuff. So, and that's when we started seeing them more often. And they sort of, that's when the diagn- they diagnosed me with PTSD and the problem was, and I don't blame them, like they were good people doing the best they can. It, like today I've realized that they were just operating from a bad playbook in terms of their form of therapy and their approach to this. Uh, but things were just getting worse and worse. So when when this happened, then I said, okay, I got to start figuring something out myself. So I started delving deeper into reading book after book, studying neuroscience, studying psychology, studying spirituality, understanding myself, understanding the process of what trauma means. What does it mean when they say I have post-traumatic stress disorder? Like, what does that really, you know, mean? And delving deep into the understanding of the mind, the body, the spirit. And that process is what slowly then led me to Fearvana, led me to my climb out and led me to the ethos, which ultimately Fearvana is, is that fear and, and struggle at any level is not bad. You know, and what I started to learn about myself, which is why I don't like to say that I I don't like the label post-traumatic stress disorder, because what I learned was post-traumatic stress is different than post-traumatic stress disorder. It is very normal to have these experiences after like war. For example, you know, I had, I was very jumpy when there was loud noises, Mm -hmm. hypervigilant, right? I did not like crowds, struggled with going to New York City, for example. I struggled with Survivor's Guild. Now, these were all things that they said, because of this, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. But through my learnings, I was like, you know, these are normal human responses to war. They're they're not a disorder. By attaching the word disorder to to these experiences, we have now transformed the relationship to these experiences. So I did not like that word. And I removed the word disorder and started to say, look, the suffering, the pain, the fear, the stress, these are not bad things. These are not negative things. These are not negative emotions or experiences as we often believe them to be, right? We live in a world that demonizes these things. People say fear is bad, but it just is. And it's what we do with it that matters. So I started to shift it. So as a very concrete example of that, what I did for a long time and literally only a few months ago, I changed this wording and I'll even explain why. But for a long time, what I did was I put a picture of my friend that I lost in the war up on my wall. And it was a picture of me and him while we in our Marine uniform. And it said, this should have been you earn this life wow wow that's an intense it's an intense thing to look at but it worked really and i realized that my guilt see the guilt is not the enemy you know like my guilt was just an expression of love guilt is not a bad emotion it's an emotion and it worked until it didn't like literally only a few months ago i changed it to honor his death earn this life because the problem was my guilt became too far and I was delving too much into the pain, too much into the darkness. And actually this really interesting thing happened like literally a few, yeah, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, um, where I was cleaning up my house and I found a folder that I had put his picture with the old words, the words that said, this should have been you earn this life. Mm -hmm. And I, and I saw it while cleaning up my house. And for the first time since the war, this was, you know, since uh, six, no, like yeah, 15, 16 years after coming back from the war, for the first time, I looked at that the word and I said, I'm glad to be alive. Wow. First time I felt, and I started just tearing up, like just bawling. And then I felt guilty for feeling that thought, of course, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I was like, how can you, but, but it was a very interesting cathartic experience for the first time I started to say, like, I'm, you know, not that 
it just it just shocked me like it i felt guilty because it, i saw his picture right and i said i'm glad i'm alive and then i felt guilty feeling that but it was like it was in a way a necessary experience that also showed me that you know my guilt had gotten me until it until it did not you know what i right. mean so well, like like marshall goldsmith says what got you here won't get you there so you have to find that line and but it worked for a long time and that's what drove me to finishing my book and to kind that's of getting amazing. to me where i am now that's amazing so and where are you now talk, talk about that so since then, you know, as I discovered uh, all these things I was learning, I knew I sort of had to share it. And in my one my personal development work I was getting into, I did some work with Jack Canfield. I went to his seminars, a chicken soup with soul author, kind of one of my mentors. I love Jack. And I had asked him once, you know, what could you do differently in your career if you could go back? And he said, I would have written my book sooner. So that inspired me to say, okay, let me write a book. Uh, you, you know, I mean, this book becomes this thing that transcends you, right? It goes all over. You don't even know the amount of lives you can touch. So I wanted to share everything I was learning. And it took me a few years to write the book. Partly was the research. Partly was a cathartic experience for myself. Partly was procrastination. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> Writing a book is freaking hard. It so, is. <laughs> yeah, you, you totally know. So it was really hard. Um and so, but eventually then wrote the book and thankfully now I'm blessed to say Fear Bonnet did really well. Uh, you know, like I'm really honored by the, the recognition it had, like the Dalai Lama wrote the Ford for my book and, and it's now kind of been all over. And so since then I've now built, 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 like right now what I'm doing is building a whole movement around this concept of Fear Vana like creating a series of products and services in multiple verticals to ultimately like the core ethos of Fearvana is to help people develop a positive relationship to the experience of pain and suffering. However, it shows up fear, stress, anxiety, like pain in life in order to do three things. What like kind of the, the world of Fearvana is to help people find, live and love their worthy struggle. I call it your worthy struggle. So I don't often like, like I think passion for what we do is a good thing, but when we say follow your passion, it conveys the idea that it will be easy. The yes. path will be easy, you know? And I don't like that. It won't, you know this. I mean, it won't be easy. No. It will be hard. No. I, oh, I think that's one of my pet, I don't know if I call it pet peeves, but pet like yeah. struggles <laughs> with, with people is that they think that because something is hard or it feels hard that they must be doing the wrong thing or it must they must be doing something wrong. And I think, no, it's supposed to be hard. It's exactly. always hard. All the stuff exactly. that's worth doing is really, really exactly. hard. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing worthwhile I've done in my life. Like everything worthwhile I have done has been extra extremely hard. Yes. From being in a relationship to writing a book to building a business to joining the Marines to running. Like today I'm an ultra marathoner. I do adventures, like serious adventures, you know. Uh, and so you you know, you built a business, written a book, all these things. It's hard. You're in a relationship, mother. I mean, I can't even imagine raising kids. So all these things I can imagine are hard, you know. Yes. So it is hard. Um, yeah. <laughs> I empathize with my mother. I've been a horrible, uh, very challenging child. So yeah. I know. That's <laughs> So I think about that too. In fact, my daughter this morning, I was helping her make her bed and she said, mommy, what's the, if you could go back in your life and change one thing and do, and do one thing differently, what would it be? And I was like, Hmm, like how honest do I be right now? And she's like, I bet I know what it is. And I said, well, and she's 10. I was like, you do? What What do you think that it is? And she said, well, I bet you wouldn't want to get your tattoo, would you? And I was like, that is exactly what I would go back to. That one. <laughs> that one. You got it, honey. Good guess. <laughs> but yeah, it's hard. That's funny. <laughs> so yeah, funny no. okay so tell understand. me tell me this one because this is this is fascinating to me but you have strong opinions about confidence and about the lie that we tell ourselves about needing confidence to do great mm -hmm. things so can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that 
Sure, yeah. I think we kind of often say in the world, you know, just people will say like, just be confident as you step into something. But the reality is you can't be confident at something you've never done before. And the expectation of being confident sends people into this self-talk and this downward spiral because we hear others say we should be confident. And then when we're not confident, we feel like there's something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. Like I worked with this one guy who said, you know, I'm just waiting for the fear to go away. So I quit my job and start my business. And he <laughs> thought, yeah, right, exactly. I mean, you get exactly the problem there is. And I told him your problem is you're waiting for the fear to go away because you can't be confident as something you've never done before. So I like to say, I call it like the five C's of confidence. You know, the first thing is you got commitment, commitment for whatever it is you're pursuing, right? No. So like commit clarity and then commitment and then conviction and then courage. So clarity on the path, commitment, like exercise that this is what I'm going to do no matter what strong conviction that this is who you will be. And then you got to exercise courage because the thing you've never done before, it's going to require courage. That's like, you can't have courage without fear. People often say fear and courage are two opposite things, but they're not like courage cannot exist without fear. It takes no courage for me to sit on my couch. You know what I mean? So you need fear in order to have courage. Once you exercise courage and take action, then you develop capabilities. And so it's kind of, so the, the five C's are clarity, commitment, conviction, courage and capabilities and with capabilities comes confidence. Mm -hmm. So only once you develop capabilities at X thing, whatever the thing is, then you start getting confident at that thing. So I mean, yeah. And so like now, you know, like podcast interview example, I'm confident I've done it. But my first one, I wasn't same thing with writing my book. When I first wrote it, I was scared. Like, are people going to think it's garbage? You know, are people going to hate it? Now I'm very confident because I've passed it to enough people and gotten enough feedback that it makes a difference. Like today I'm confident that I can hand it to anybody and know it will, you know, resonate. It will make a difference, but that comes with feedback. It comes with taking action. So the point is like, don't expect to be confident when you start at anything, you'll have self-doubt. So true. You'll have fear. You'll have all that stuff. Like I remember when I reached out to the Dalai Lama the whole time, it took me like five months of building a relationship with the monk there. The whole time I'm like going through my mind is like, they probably hate me. Why aren't they responding to my emails? You know, they don't like me. They hate my book. Who am I? All that good stuff that we all know, you know? But the thing is you can listen to your thoughts, but you don't have to be defined by that thoughts. Mm -hmm. Sort of like a guiding mantra that I always say is you're not your thoughts, feelings, or your experiences. You are the thinker of your thoughts, the feeler of your feelings, and the experiencer of your experiences. And mastering that space between what is and who you choose to be outside of what is, is everything. I love that. Say that again. So you're not your thoughts, feelings, or experiences. You are the thinker of your thoughts, the feeler of your feelings, and the experiencer of your experiences. So mastering that space. So like sort of a mantra I always say is, be with what is, but do not become what is. Powerful. Be with what is, but do not become what is. That and is I use so this when I run, because when I do ultra marathons, I'm in pain a lot. <laughs> yeah. And that's, what, that's actually where the mantra came to me once I was running and I was like, all right, be with the pain, but do not become the pain. And then it translated to be with what is, but do not become what is. So whether it's fear, any emotion, just like, it's not a bad emotion, understand it, delve into it, be with it, and then choose in service of the higher self. Take action regardless of what is so in service good. of the mission. So yeah. good. And I, I say that a lot too. I say action is the antidote to fear because Absolutely. taking action is really truly the only way to start overcoming it and to build up that confidence. I love the five C's. And I see that so often with, I coach a lot of uh, business owners and online yeah. business owners. And, and you know, the people come to me and say, Ruth, I really want to start a business, but exactly what you're talking about. I, I need to wait. I need to wait until I'm ready. I need to, I need to do more research. I need to yeah. do this stuff. And they're, and they're always waiting, 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 thinking that there's going to be this magic right moment time. where they yeah. feel 
ready. And you just don't. You don't. Yeah. In most of the things that are worth doing in life, yeah. you never feel ready. You never feel yeah, ready. Absolutely. You just have to absolutely. jump and then let the net appear. Yeah, abs- <laughs> which I, yeah, absolutely love that. You know, And then as you do, you'll make mistakes, obviously, but that's how you learn. You'll get capabilities. You'll fall. You'll rise back up. And, and the greatest lessons are in the doing of it. So I love, yeah, totally resonate with that. So addiction is a big part of your story and mm-hmm. you were able to combat alcoholism. I don't know if we talked about that. You never ended up going to rehab or anything like that. You were able no. to just push past it. So mm-hmm. what has that taught you in your life about habit formation? It Coming out of it, you know, actually it did break my sobriety after uh, I mentioned, you know, after the, uh, now she's my ex-wife, after my divorce happened, I went through some dark spaces again, broke my, broke my sobriety. Uh, came out of that and obviously now I'm 100% sober and learned from it but it taught me to channel like for in my case you know channeling the addictive personality in a healthy way so like that's one element of it but it also taught me a lot about mastering the process of behavior change so to kind of get into the habit formation it helped me understand how how it works and really delve deep into the process and essentially at the very highest level it's kind of the cycle of will and habits so in order to change habits you exercise conscious energy and exercise will so you got to and this is a thing i I think sometimes you know we can go deep into the science of habits the cue routine reward right the three triggers of habits Mm -hmm. but i think like just this is where i think where some people are like missing and when they talk about habits so i think I'll, i'll start there is that it's still going to take will you know, we often say if you just set like set the environment, that's yes, setting environment is invaluable. So if I want to quit desserts, you know, don't put desserts in my fridge, like obviously, right? So environment factor is important. But what I think we miss sometimes when we talk about habit formation is the importance of the will. And that part you cannot downplay. No matter what the habit, no matter if you're setting floss, your floss by your toothbrush, it's going to require conscious energy at first. So you exercise conscious energy to the point that until it no longer requires it, until it becomes an autopilot. At which point, in order to evolve to the next awakening, the next growth, the next version of yourself, you need to reactivate will. So habit formation, once you build something until it's a habit, it doesn't mean the thing becomes easy. Like that one thing might be, but then you have to exercise the next struggle in order to grow into the next self. Interesting. Yeah. So like it taught me that, okay, I've mastered one area now. Now, okay, let me look for the next gap. So basically, again, sort of at a high level, all growth is two things. Find the problem, fix the problem, find what's working and do more of it. At its simplest (laughs) level, right? Like that's it. That's it, right? Yes. That's all. Yes. (laughs) So I'm always looking. And the key thing is there, and and, and what I just shared is, you got to be looking for the problem. Like it's not a bad thing to have problems because we often think that when I get here, when I make a million dollars, whatever the here is, I get the relationship, the million dollars, the car, the then, house, then whatever, all the, the problems then it go all goes away. away. Nope. And we know <laughs> more it does money, more problems. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. So <laughs> I always like to say too that progress is not the elimination of problems. Progress is the creation of new problems. And accepting that reality is important because when we do – like if we if we think that when we get here my problems go away we're setting ourselves up for a lifetime of misery because <laughs> they so won't. True. Yeah. When we start to say, oh, problems are a good thing because through a problem I can gain a new awakening, I can gain a new uh, like you can only transform into the next version of yourself through a barrier, through a struggle, right? So I'm always looking for what's the next gap, and on the other side of that gap, on the side you can call the some people don't like the word problem, call it a challenge, whatever word you want to use. The thing is find the problem find the challenge and then fix that and then on the other side there'll be a next one Mm -hmm. and keep looking for that so kind of getting out of addiction taught me to seek out 
every new barrier, embrace the struggle of it all, constantly be sort of on that dance, on that cycle of will with habits, you know, awareness and action, awareness and action, and, and going through this this constant cyclical process and not expecting the pain to go away because like the problems, it will be. And I think faster we accept that, faster we can learn to fall in love with that and the process of embracing those problems and finding the growth on the other side of them. I love that. I love that because it's so true that we think that just because we've overcome one thing in our life that we're done, that we get no, to be done. Exactly. Nope. But that's not how, that's not how it works. Not at all. And yeah. I think is th- what, what it does do is if you have a, a da- adapted this growth mindset that, that you have that, of okay, what's the next challenge in front of me? What do I need to do to fix this? What's the next thing? You become more and more equipped to, to handle yes. the challenges you have. Yeah. Added more tools to your toolbox. You have greater yeah. skills. You have greater knowledge. You have greater understanding, and so overcoming the next challenge is not as scary. Or you're able exactly. to overcome bigger challenges. And yeah. doesn't mean that they go away though. They never exactly go away. not at all. You develop the yeah. you just develop the resilience through doing that. And I think a big part of that as you're going through that process, just wanted to add this. You know, really practicing time for stillness. Just being like going deep within yourself, being still, you know, I mean, like when I broke my sobriety and again, you probably gathered, I take everything to a fairly extreme level. So (laughs) when I, when I broke my sobriety, I realized something was missing. So I went deep within and I spent, I went and did a darkness retreat where I spent seven days in pitch darkness, isolation, and silence. Just complete dark. Like can't see your hand in front of your darkness 24 seven for seven days. What? Yeah. (laughs) And you don't eat during that time? You, I had smoothies. So the place that I did it, like they bring smoothies. You can choose to do food or smoothies. I chose yeah. to do smoothies. So they bring a little smoothie. They put it outside your room. They ring a little bell letting you know it's there. And you go, I mean, the hallway is still completely dark and you kind of grab the smoothie. But I did that because I needed to go still. And I think stillness is something missing in the world. So practicing that time. But yeah, I did it obviously at an extreme level. I mean, it was a very profound and it's deeply spiritual experience. But like going to into those spaces of stillness. I highly recommend a darkness retreat for everybody, but I'm not saying oh, you have now, to. <laughs> now the extreme lover in me is like, I got to do a darkness retreat. I could not recommend it enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is the name of the place for everybody who's thinking this too? It's uh, actually darknessretreat.net okay. is their website. We'll yeah. check it out. They're, we will also in, add that to the show notes. <laughs> they're in Germany and uh, beautiful people, beautiful uh, experience. They're, I mean, it's challenging, obviously. You're sitting in a isolated... I mean, because the thing with darkness too is unlike, let's say, you know, if you're familiar with the Vipassanas, the silent retreats. Mm-mm. So those are a little bit more common, these sort of people going to silent retreats. But unlike a silent retreat, when the silent retreat, you're still seeing stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in walking around, you're seeing. But in darkness you have nowhere external for your consciousness to go. So I can't look at things and be like, that's a wall, that's a person. I have nothing externally for my consciousness to attach onto. As a result, you have nowhere to go but within. That's a daunting, challenging voyage to go deep within in that level. But it's also incredibly powerful and incredibly profound. And you will find answers there that you, like obviously it's invaluable to get mentors, learn from others, no doubt. Like that's how I've gotten here. But it's like, you have to against dance. It's this duality, right? Like, Seek out wisdom from others, but take the time to go within because you're going to find something there the deeper you go that you can't find elsewhere. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> oh, I'm very intrigued now. Okay. I have a couple more questions I want to ask you and I sure. don't want don't to run out of time. So um, you are all about systems, right? And about systematizing pretty much everything pretty much. in your entire <laughs> life. So can you talk a little bit about that? What have you... What have you done, first of all, to systematize your life? Sure. And what has that actually done for you? Yeah. So at the high level, why this matters is when you create systems, you're not wasting cognitive energy. 
you're not wasting physical or mental energy on the thing. That way you can save your energy for the, the, the mission, if you will, because the, the mission is hard, writing, book, building, all whatever the thing is. So why you create systems is so you can basically eliminate thinking for when you need it. So how I've done it is I turn everything into a checklist. I come from this mentality that if I could turn my life into, create a playbook for my life that I could hand to another human being and they just follow that playbook. Now, obviously there's nuances to the human experiences. I get that. But the point is the way thinking it, thinking of this way allows you to start creating systems for everything that's not a system. So like, for example, I have an app on my phone that I use called Todoist and I have checklists for like my morning routine is a checklist. My, 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 I theme out my days. My night routine is a checklist. My meals are systematized every day. I don't have to think I have systems for how I shower. I mean, I take it again to the next, like as a neurotic level, uh, just how kind of how I do, uh, <laughs> but sensing um, the theme. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like even like, and, and I, so what I do is at the end of every day, I write down what are my top three to five tasks for the next day. Then when I go through my next day, I just follow along with those. I, I don't have to think. I just follow the task. And then I work in systematized chunks. So I recently shifted from 50 minutes, but what I do is a one-hour chunk, 10-minute break. One-hour chunk, 10-minute break. And then usually after two to three, I'll take a longer break for my meal, right? And the systems are all planned out. I have themed out days. Uh, I have themed out, you know, I have, so I've themed out like my, and this is obviously in alignment with the larger mission. So I have actually a mission for, I, I crystallize what my personal philosophy is, my life mission. And then I have sort of, what do I want to achieve before I die? Then I work out yearly missions, quarterly targets. So my main goals are based on quarters. Research has shown that 90 day goals are kind of the best way to set you know, structured goals. So everything is kind of in the back of the mind. I set my quarterly goal. Then I break it down into monthly, weekly, daily. And I'm always looking at is what I am doing aligned with that. So then when I work, when I wake up and process my day, it's just following along. I don't have to think, right? I save my energy for my training and my business, which are kind of my two things in life is my physical training and my business. So both of which require high demands of in, in energy, mentally and physical. And so I just have checklists for everything, literally everything. I, like I said, even for how I shower. So uh, <laughs> I love that. That's, yeah. that's hilarious. So does it cause anxiety if you get off? Like it, it, it's hard traveling sometimes breaks the systems and I travel a good bit or when I come back from transitions. So like when I, I just came back from Norway where I did a polar training expeditions and the cool thing, why, like how I got into such a way of systematizing was because I realized what worked in the Marines. In the Marines, there is immense structure imposed upon you. Same thing when I do these outdoor adventures like skiing across Greenland or mountain climbing. You have to follow structures and systems because if you don't, the consequences are severe and fatal, right? And so, in but the thing is, in the real world, these consequences are there. They're just not as immediately painful in the sense that I could make some mistakes now, but the compound effect of that mistake will affect me one month later, one year later, one five years later even, right? In the, in the wilderness or in the Marines, it could be death. It could be severe severe pain instantly. So, but thinking about it, how I create systems in the wilderness allows me, like is what brought me into it. So when they, so I have had challenges sometimes in implementing it, like, like when travel kind of breaks the system or when I come back from a transition, but, and you know, sometimes life also happens in the way, but as much as possible, I'm always looking at, I'm not going to create my life reactively. And if emergencies happen, so so be it. But I'm going to be as proactive as possible as about shaping my life. So I'm also able to adapt when things don't 
go because again part of it is creating a system to manage when systems don't follow through that's another so you can actually at a sort of very meta level how do you manage when systems are not working right and then that just becomes like managing the mindset of adversity because in the in the wilderness again in the war things can go wrong that you don't you didn't Mm -hmm. prepare for and you have to manage that so you kind of go on this dance i love it i love it so (laughs) Do you, is your shower system different than most people's shower system? I'm it's, a little curious about that. Yeah, sure. I basically have sort of five showers that I do. And uh, it's like a cold shower, uh, two different kinds of contrast showers. Contrast, we're switching between hot and cold, and the ratio is different. And then there's what I call the white space shower, where I'm just in a hot shower, but I'm like white space to think. And then there's sort of a music shower. So I have five showers wow. that are a checklist. You I have, have a checklist for each one. You have systematized your sh- systematized showers, showers to a whole new level. That's, that's goals for me that's, right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so where there's freedom in the system is like, you know, which shower do I choose depending on what I need? If there's So even procrastination can be systematized, even huh. spontaneity. Because some people are like, what about spontaneity? You know, some people highly disagree with my way of life. And, and I, that's cool. I'm mm-hmm. not saying follow, but the principles behind it are what matters. Is, so I think there's value in even systematizing spontaneity. So you can say, okay, you're like, I don't have a family, but you do, right? Like you can say, okay, this time to this time, I'm going to be with my kids or whatever, you know, and this, yeah. this time to this time, I'm not going to have a plan. Yes. And you know, you know, you can systematize I actually do that. spontaneity. Yeah. Cause I'm so a very, it. I don't systematize. I don't think in quite the same way as you, but, um, some in somewhat ways, but I'm very yeah. structured with my time blocking and like every day, every hour of my day is very, it's very much like planned out and structured Love and it. I stick to that. And, but I do that because my husband, we, I, have you ever done the strengths finder assessment? Um, no, I but yeah. my bottom strength is adaptability and his, mm. that's my number 34 and his number one is adaptability. And so when we did that strength finder assessment, we realized that the thing that we fight about most is the fact that I'm not very spontaneous and he mm. only wants spontaneity. And so now I time block spot a spot. I love that. Love it. <laughs> Which, so you found a way to work. That's awesome. Yeah. Because I just can say like, okay, on the weekends I can be flexible. Although I do wake up and I'm like, okay, what are, what's our plan? Gonna be? <laughs> what's the plan for I totally resonate with you. <laughs> so, yes, It's very hard for me to just like, just do nothing. Which is like the only thing that he really wants to do is just do nothing. Yeah. It's funny. Okay. Well, that's so cool that you find we, a way to balance it. Yeah. <laughs> need to wrap up but what's next what's coming next for you what are you working on right now that you're super excited about you got any new adventures coming up what's on the horizon i do have big in terms of my adventures i have the ski crossing of the patagonia ice cap coming up wow. uh, in november three week ski crossing and then north pole and south pole the following year uh, that's the adventure track and the business track. Uh, right now, I'm really excited about building what we're building with the next phase of Fearvana. We're kind of getting into the tech startup world where we're creating a Fearvana, like a, va- a virtual training ground to help people walk their own hero's journey. Cool. Using the, the, the using the Fearvana methodologies, creating a virtual training ground that'll sort of interact with the real world and allow people to walk, like live their hero's journey. And like Paulo Coelho says that one of my favorite quotes is, to fulfill one's personal legend is one's only true obligation. And so the idea is to help people fulfill their own personal legend. And that's really what Fearvana is about, is embracing the struggles along the way, falling in love with the struggles along the way, because that's what it takes, and uh, and to live their legend. So I'm excited about, terrified about both of these, because I have no idea how to build a massive startup like that. I've terrified up all my daunting adventures, but that's, you know, if your dreams don't scare you, you're not aiming high enough. So. That is so <laughs> true, so true. <laughs> So we ask this question on every episode. Um, so think hard for about your answer. But what is the best piece of advice you have ever received, and why? Hmm. 
So I've received obviously like a lot, like a, a lot of uh, advice along the journey. But I think the sort of the most profound one that sort of stands out is I wouldn't call it a direct piece of advice, maybe a quote that really hits home in terms of who I am and it's helped me crystallize my philosophy is from Vince Lombardi. He says that I firmly believe that any man's finest hour, the greatest fulfillment to all that he holds dear, is that moment that he lies exhausted on the battlefield, victorious. And I think that ethos, that advice, and a combining that with my life experience, my learnings, is what it's all about. And it's led to, like, I actually believe that everybody should, like, the val- there's so much value in crystallizing your personal philosophy into a one-sentence statement. Uh, and I learned this from Michael Gervais, who's a amazing guy, mastery kind of mentality. And so my personal philosophy is the path to inner peace is the pursuit of a worthy inner war. And, uh, and that quote sort of led, and my life experience led me to the realization that we all need that worthy inner war to fight. And that's how we find inner peace. That's amazing. Love it. <laughs> all right. So any final thoughts? And then let us know where we can find you online. Sure. Final thoughts is sort of, if there was two words to summarize my mantra, suffer well. Uh, embrace it. suffering, suffer well. That's the key, most important skill to master in life is to fall in love with the experience of suffering and build a positive relationship to it. So suffer well. And you can find me at fearvana.com. The book is also available on Amazon, uh, Kindle, Audible, paperback, and all the profits go to charity. So we're supporting some beautiful causes from former child soldiers in West Africa to young girls who are victims of sex trafficking in India. So any support there always means a lot. Awesome. Well, Ashke, thank you so much for being here today. So much thank good you, advice. Ruth. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. All right. Don't forget that if you would like to get all the show notes for this episode, along with the links to everything that we just talked about, you can find it all at dowitscared.com slash episode 103. Once again, get all the show notes and links on our website at dowitscared.com slash episode 103. And then while you're there at doitscared.com, don't forget to go to doitscared.com slash TED to watch my TED Talk. Be sure to share it with all your friends. Find out exactly how fear might be holding you back and what you can do about it. And then before we go, I just want to say, as always, that I love hearing from you. So if you have any questions about what we talked about today or any other topics that you want to see addressed here on the Do It Scared podcast, please feel free to reach out either via email or just by messaging me on Instagram. And that about does it for this episode of the Do It Scared with Ruth Suka podcast. Thank you for joining me today. And if you liked what you heard, I would love it if you would post a review on iTunes. And then while you're there, be sure to subscribe to be notified of new episodes. And speaking of upcoming episodes, be sure to join me next week for another Get Ruthed coaching session. I've actually been told that I'm starting to get a little bit feisty, but I think that's just because there is a whole lot of tough love inside of me that just needs to come out. So watch out, guys, because you don't know what's coming, but you know it's going to be good. And I will catch you then.